Hi everyone, welcome back for another live on LinkedIn. I'm Julia DeMauro, the founder of the IBD Hub. And today we have a new guest uh, and we're going to talk about how architects and property developers can work better together. So uh, please stay with us uh, for a few minutes. I just wanted to reintroduce uh, the IBD Hub. Um, so we are a company that help architects to grow their firm and find new clients. Uh, we also help uh, senior architects to start their own practice. So if you are interested to get in contact, you can just DM me. Um, and also this episode will be put on the IBD Hub podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. So just tune in if you are missing a part of the conversation. Um, so her guest today is Adewale Ademolake. I hope I said it right. Chartered planning and development surveyor uh, with experience in both private and public sector. And you also have a blog. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Um, and I would love you to introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and tell us um, yeah, a little bit what you've been up to recently. Yeah, so hi everyone. Uh, my name is Adewale Ademolake, and I am I'm a senior development manager, as um, um, Julia mentioned, the Chartered Planning and Development Surveyor. Um, I also blog from time to time, so feel free to follow my blog, which is www.alakedreaming.com. I'm sure, Julia, you might be able to do something with the screen. <laughs> I'll put yeah. it on the screen shortly. Yeah, um, so yeah, so that's just a bit about myself. Um, I work on regeneration projects, so um, I work on schemes that... I think the total value of the schemes I'm working on at the moment is around 500 million. So it's quite massive. And we're talking, when I talk about regeneration, I'm talking about existing homes that are going to be demolished and reprovided. Um, so yeah, th that's my expertise. So anything to do with development appraisals, planning permission, elements of design, because I instruct a lot of architects, that is my specialism. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Yeah, I'm gonna put just, uh your website here so people can take no perfect this is yes. it <laughs> <laughs> it took me Great. a while to find it, but here we go so today we're going to talk about um how architects and property developers can work better together because it's a it's a very uh, big topic actually and uh you wrote yourself a blog about it uh an, yeah. an article right and that got quite some views and quite you got a lot of people coming back to you about that i guess like there is the point of view of the architect and the property developer are completely different on the matter um okay. do you want to tell us a little bit the story behind this this blog well yeah thank you julia and basically i, I think i drafted it because um the, the reason why i started the blog is for people to get a glimpse into the life of a, of a development manager and ultimately the, the the importance of it is because I'm client side and I make a lot of the decisions and I work with a lot of architects, I thought how much better for me to put my views across and hopefully yeah. get some architects to understand how I see things. And I was able to get an architect to respond to my initial um, article <laughs> to give their perspective. And maybe I can get some more architects to respond to it so that we can all learn and understand where each other's coming from. So, yeah. yeah. 
For sure. Um, my first question to you is: What are the property the priorities for a property developer when you make a project? What are the key things that you're looking out for? So, from it, it depends on from what perspective. There's two perspectives, and this is where you know when you introduce me to say public and private. There's two different motivations from both organizations. But um, okay. I'll start off with public. Public's, um, the public sector's general overriding objective is to provide housing for people that need it the most. So you tend yeah. to find that um, local authorities, councils, governments are responsible for ensuring that they can house people that can't house themselves. So that may be, um, or people that can't easily find housing through their own means. So that would be um, the public sector stepping in, providing suitable housing for those types of individuals. And that is one motivation for the public sector. But overall, as you know, housing has a massive impact in transforming people's lives. So you can look at when um, when we had the, I think it's the Second World War, there was a lot of bombing that happened in London and the local authority effectively redesigned or rebuilt as large swaths of London, hence why you've got large council estates. But yeah. now those council estates are now slowly becoming redundant and there's now a need for a new type of housing to bring into modern ages. So you can see that it's not only on one side to do with rehousing people at need, but it's also modernizing housing so that people um, can get the opportunity to experience new things. And housing has a massive factor in terms of crime reduction. So you can design out crime, as you know. Um, there's yeah. also a factor about well-being, mental and physical. So all of those types of things that are happening in recent times are having a massive impact on how people um, um, live and experience their homes. So from a public sector point of view, it's very much about changing an experience and also improving um, um, the, the livelihoods and the well-being of others. Yeah, for sure. And and for the private sector, is it any different? So the private sector, <laughs> I would go back and say that the objective will be uh, money. Yeah, Believe it that's not. a big topic, yeah. Yeah, it's money. Um, it's, it's not the only reason, but it is a reason. Um, and, and the reason I say money is because the private sector exists without them making a profit. It is will be very difficult for them to keep going as a business. So money is the objective within the private sector. So that's why I feel mm -hmm. I wrote that text to say maybe architects should be very mindful of the money side of things more than the design so that they can help us as developers make good decisions and move our projects forward. Yeah, because I mean, from my experience anyway, uh, I'm also an architect, but you know, I, I now change my path. Um, but uh, working with property developers uh, in the private um, sector has been, especially prior to COVID, seemed to be um, the, the job of the architect was to, first of all, charm and sell the concept at first to to you know the neighborhood and to the potential clients and so on and the second job was making it happen but making it happen to squeeze in as many valuable meter squares to get the <laughs> most out of it right <laughs> like, so um from that perspective like especially in big cities um the the private sector kind of tried to shrink as many people in a compound space right yeah. and now with covid things might be a little bit different 
I don't know if you feel that, but maybe like people are starting to want to live in a slightly different way. Uh, they also have now experience working at home with their children, their family. Yep. Um, they have started understanding the importance of having an outside space and so on. And these are all things that maybe we didn't think of before COVID, right? Where yes. we were doing open plan housing, uh, no walls, uh, just open as much as possible. Same for the offices, uh, open plan, co-working and so on. And now we have a different experience. So I was wondering, like, since since COVID, let's say, did the priority change a little bit? No, you know what? I, I think I think I can I can see um, um, some merit in what you're saying. Because um, in in London in particular, uh, we there is a minimum space requirement that you have to deliver in terms of how big the units are, which is one part, and then the second part is to do with um, how how much external space you're providing for the well-being of the community, and that's all predicated within what we call the London Plan. So, in London, we use if I break it down, you've got the National Planning Policy that sets the overall picture for London yeah. for the whole of UK, and then it goes down. It goes from, no, not the UK, England. Then it goes to um, the London plan, which is a regional spatial strategy. And it sets out requirements for London as a whole. And then it yeah. breaks down further to the local area. Now, um, in, in, in more recently, the London plan came out a few weeks ago. So what, yeah. is, what is now done is there is specific requirements for each development to achieve a minimum amount of external space for each individual unit and also landscaped areas for everyone living within an apartment complex. So you okay. then find that, um, what you then find is that uh, um, it then creates this whole issue. It creates an opportunity for housing um, to, to obviously meet the needs of the people. And I think that is a, a very important point. But more specifically to your point around COVID and the implications, um, I have had the benefit of transitioning from the COVID world, which started last March, all the way to this world. And I've got a few schemes that I'm taking through planning at the moment. Now, what we are now having to consider is, can you have a separate office inside of a, an individual flat? Is it better mm. to have an office in a flat or is it better to have a separate office? And it's yeah. now around, okay, we're looking at some of these spaces, underground floors, are we going to put retail or are we going to mm -hmm. potentially consider um, putting some flexible office spaces? So I think COVID definitely is, is definitely altering how people are designing spaces. And the final point I would mention when you mentioned around our property developers um, changing visions after, pan after the pandemic, I would say yes, because we've seen... You might have seen it on the news that people there's a massive exodus of people wanting to leave London to go to more mm. um, 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 places with more space. So you find mm. that um, outer skirts of London or further out, you get a lot more for your money, but you're also able to benefit from those beautiful environments. Yeah. So, for instance, you buy a flat in London for £500,000, you can get a, a three bedroom detached house outside of London. And then the digital working has also made that very easy for people to make that transition. So I haven't left yeah. my house since last March. So you can imagine, um, yeah. you can effectively manage your projects to do all the work you need to do from anywhere in the world, which is a good thing. Well, we had um, um, some real estate developers um, 
on another episode. Um, they were from Sirhant, New York. I don't know if you know them. Um, but we were also tapping onto that because um, there was an article saying, you know, New York is dead. Uh, people are just going to move out of the city. And, you know, the properties are going to uh, have a lower, um, you know, uh, price and so on. And, and now what we see is that actually people took that opportunity to invest in New York. So actually, yeah. like, prices are rising to the sky. Um, and in the end, people will come back to the city, right? So I wonder if, it, do you think that maybe this is how we, we were thinking, like, during the lockdown, and now that we're starting to envision what it would be like to, to reopen everything, like, maybe people are starting to think of London as an investment? Or do you think that also... Well, London is impacted by Brexit also, of course. Um, so a lot of international investors might not think that London is an opportunity like before. <laughs> like, I don't know, you have more insight in the in the London ground. So that's why I'm asking you, like, um, do you think that things will change a little bit more in London? That's a, I, I think that's a very good question. And, and the reason I say that is, you've already set what I would class as the framework behind what success looks like post-COVID. You've talked about Brexit. So, for instance, how do I put it? If you slap someone, yeah, and the person, <laughs> if you slap someone and the person starts crying immediately, you know that you gave that person a good slap, isn't it, yeah? But if yeah. you slap someone and there's a delayed cry, you will never know how much damage is really you've really yeah. done to a person. So... What the reason I use that analogy is to say that London received two slaps in a year. So one week we left up to the European Union, and that is literally detaching from the single biggest market in the world. That was number one. Mm -hmm. That was a big slap economically to some degree. And then the second slap is the pandemic happened. We don't yeah. know what has happened. We do not know what damage those two things have caused to the, the, the desirability of this particular country. But yeah. because I'm, a, I'm an internal optimist, I will tell you one thing I think is good. We know that um, London can remain competitive without people mm -hmm. physically being in London. We've seen it um, for the past how many years now, or months now, people have been working and transacting in London. We've seen the stock market is obviously fluctuated, but we've seen some <laughs> good things in the stock market. So um, mm -hmm. from my perspective, we would not truly know the impact, but... The, the one thing I have to also say is COVID happened, as you all know, and we we haven't been to the high streets yet, have we? No. I'm not sure where, where you are. You probably haven't been to your, your local high street because you've been trying to stay away from getting, um, obviously getting infected. Now, yeah. until we start going out to our high streets and seeing the shops that we normally do shopping are now closed, that's when the pandemonium will begin. So sure. this is where I feel that um, when it comes to markets and it comes to things happening, you never know what will happen until everything's back to normal and you would see yeah. the, the devastation. So Debenhams has gone under. Many businesses have gone under as a result of COVID. The government can't continue bankrolling every single person and thing in this country. So it is going to have, unfortunately, going to have a devastating impact. So to answer that question, I think Brexit... And um and 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 um COVID has a devastating impact, but yeah. the full extent of the damage won't be known. So, for instance, you know that like they call it disaster recovery. Once yeah. the tsunami happens, um tsunami happens, you never know until. 
the water's recessed and then you can assess the damage. We can't yeah. understand um, the extent of the damage until after we, we come out of this pandemic. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it, it's what we call a bubble. Like, you know, we, we won't see it until it happens, unfortunately. But I think that's the case for, for any European city, actually. It's not just London. But, of course, the Brexit adds up to, to the discussion. Um, if anyone in the audience wants to ask us any questions, we will take them uh, uh, as soon as uh, you send them. Um, and I'm going to move on to a, another question, which is, um, well, in my experience, at least, I'm always going to talk about my experience because <laughs> this is the only one that I have to give today. Um, but um, the first step to work hand in hand with an architect um, is first to sell the concept, right? Is to make a pretty building that has uh, nice visual uh, vis visualizations, um, that is attractive, that is going to sell the building. Sometimes you sell the apartments even before it's built, right? Yeah. Um, and also to get the validation from the neighborhood and the community living around it. But sometimes this concept is um, very conceptual. <laughs> And once you have to actually fit it into the regulation and make it happen, it's a different story. So what is your experience in this process? So uh, I, I will take you through some of the processes that we follow. So um, where have you practiced? Sorry, I know you're interviewing me. In, but I in, in the Netherlands and in the UK. Netherlands yeah. and UK. Yeah. yeah. No, no, good, good. So I think that a lot of what I would explain next, you would definitely understand. So um, so I'll take you through the Reba stages. I think that would be the easiest way. So we've got Reba stage zero, which is concept. No, it's not even concept. It's just the uh, overall picture. Yeah. yeah. So, um, or the briefing stage. So what generally happens is um, we would have a piece of land and then we'll get an architect to come up with stage zero to one design. And that would yeah. establish the parameters. And that would establish what can we deliver. And then we would scrutinize those designs, see what form we like, look at build costs to some degree. So what I've done, and I'll set, I'll set the framework and then I'll answer your question. What I generally do is, um, this whole point you talked about is between zero, um, Reaper stages, zero to, to three. It's zero. even competition stage, even the competition Pardon? stage. It could be also the competition stage because I think that um, when there is big competitions, you guys pick one architect and then advertise that uh, competition project, and that can be very different from reality, right? Like, yeah. So when I put together these briefs in particular, what what I generally do is we would do what they call quality and pricing um, requirements. So if you, your quality is basically answering a set of questions, and then um, the pricing element is how much your physical bid is going to how much you're going to pitch so the person that gives the lowest score in terms mm -hmm. of the lowest price will get the maximum price on the pricing quality yeah. and then the person that gives the best quality yeah so you get my drift and, and how yeah. we select people so mm -hmm. we've got pricing and quality um but um we don't tend to ask for design at that stage we just ask for your ideas now if an architect comes up with an amazing conceptual design very early on at the bidding stage, it allows us to understand your thought process. So 
as an example, I've seen bids where I've asked you, can you please describe to me your approach to designing with a community? And then you've mm -hmm. just explained it to me in words. I would prefer to see it in images mm -hmm. as well as with a bit of writing because that yeah. allows me to really feed into your overall picture. So I think that um that is probably an important point. Um, yeah. So going back to what you mentioned around um, this whole concept, so that whole Reba stays zero, we will set the brief of what, in broad terms, what we're looking for, and then we'll take it through the Reba stages. And then at each Reba stage, we will do a design review. So we would scrutinize the design, we will question and continually question everything to see, you said you want to do 10 units, can we make it 20 or 300? Mm -hmm. Let's make it 400. Because what we're doing as developers, it's not always about money, but it's a matter of, we need to make sure that we are hitting our internal hurdle rates to ensure that the, the scheme is viable. Um, yeah. But in terms of that whole concept, in terms of you mentioned to fit in regulations and make it happen, there are um, planning requirements, there's space standards, there's um, um, London plan um, regulations, et cetera, that inhibit what you can and can't do in a particular development. And sure. those things, in my personal opinion, are, are there to make sure you are not creating slums, the slums of the future. You're, you're creating yeah. environments where people want to live and work. So I'll give you an example. If if you look at Dubai as an example, yeah, Dubai is building buildings left, right and centre everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you will have a 50-storey building here that's overshadowed by a 20-storey unit. What is yeah. the internal um, um, environment like of the smaller building when it's overshadowed by those massive buildings? And sure. in the UK, that is unacceptable. You would yeah. have to consider daylight and sunlight, overheating, etc., to make sure that there is sufficient light and the internal environment is, is sufficient for yeah. um, the people working or living there. So I think that sure. those are the reasons why um, stuff like regulations that you just mentioned is very important and we have to fit with them um, and it's generally scrutinised by yeah. planning well, London. I, I think that that's great and I think that maybe some countries are mi missing those regulations right um yeah. in my in my experience it happened to me to be involved in in a in a in a competition with um quite some architecture names um and we won the competition but of course um because it was in the city center um you know um and there's a lot of things going on in the city it's not like building on the virgin land right like so we sold a proposal to the developers and we won and then um once we had to build it we found out that you know underneath there was a metro uh, uh, going through and there was a car park underneath the site so we could not do the grid that we thought we could do um, so you know like at competition at the competition stage or like you know uh, the, 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 the first stage is when you sell the project to the government and you sell the project to the community and it looks a certain way once you dig you find out okay there is so many constraints like can it actually look like that Right. So there is a, um, a difference between what you sold the public and then what you actually get, which is uh, a uh, little bit scary. Right. I've got a solution for you. If to you and any of your architect friends. Yeah. yeah. If you want a simple solution to that type of problem, <laughs> the, first thing, the first thing you're going to ask the client for is, do you have any um, topographical topographical surveys of your yeah. the particular area in question because when you ask that question 
for, for instance, if you asked me that question and you were bidding for something, I would just observe that you are a person that is interested in this project and wants to get yeah. to the detail. So um, I know that I've worked on projects which have significant constraints. And if you overpromise and say, based on looking at that land as one hectare, we can get 2,000 units on there. But then you find that, I don't know, there's a gas line that supplies the whole of London going through there yeah. and you can't move it under any circumstances. And you now say to me, Adewale, I can only deliver you 200 homes because half of that site or a quarter of the three quarters of that site is not now redundant because of that gas pipe. Immediately, you have set your expectations too high. So I think that one of the things that I would always recommend to architects is there's two elements. You have to sell to your client so that they, they are won over, yeah? But on the flip side, you have to have an air of realism in what you are suggesting um, exactly. and, and caveat it. So it's, it's, it's yeah. very, very important because um, yeah. if you keep selling, you know, like you get the salesman that's always selling, but when it comes to deliver me the goods or anything, you can't, they're not delivering the goods. You start questioning their authenticity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. And, and uh, I, I got this comment from Juan. Yeah, we had, it was mentioned that the metro was there, but like, of course, the architects, sometimes they just want to win the bid. And in order to win the bid, like they're ready to draw whatever sells and then figure it out later. That's usually exactly. sometimes exactly. how it works, right? <laughs> um, I had another question for you about the design process and the communication throughout. Um, now we're trying to use BIM much more in order to give you guys an overview of this model. Um, but in my opinion, that's not enough. So I was wondering how your projects are working out throughout the process and if the communication with the architects is efficient um, or if some of them don't want to listen to certain things. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I would answer this. Uh, I will answer this honestly and I won't yeah. give any examples. So um, <laughs> I would say that uh, generally speaking, architects do listen, but whether they mm -hmm. actually digest what you're saying is a totally different question. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, I say, no, 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 no. There's, actually, I'll give you the, the analogy. They say there's a difference between hearing and listening. Yeah. <laughs> so hearing is like, you've just heard a noise come in your direction. Listening yeah. is digesting. And then the third yeah. element to that whole process is responding and the reason I, I, I put those three things together is because I find that some of the architects I work with here, they yeah. listen, but they don't always respond positively yeah. or collaboratively in yeah. some cases. Not in all cases, but in some cases. So um, I think that um, on, on that whole point you mentioned around communication, um, I, and, and please, <laughs> I, I mean no disrespect by what I'm, what I'm going to say next. If you look, yeah. if you imagine, I don't know, who's the greatest painter or architect, um, Da Vinci or whichever, um, yeah. in Italy as an example, imagine me as the person that commissioned him, yeah, saying to him, hi, Da Vinci, I need you to don't draw that land this way, draw it this way, and I want it that way. What do you think he's going to do to me, even though I'm his, 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 I'm, I am his client? He's going to have a bit of an argument with me because... Creators are very particular about the way that they create, if that makes sense. And that goes for architects. So I find sometimes mm -hmm. that when you're now dealing with designers, like architects, and then they're putting their life and soul into a particular design, which is amazing, but I make a comment about it, 
sometimes there can come some architects can be like, you are questioning my design. What? Because that they've put their heart and soul into it. And yeah. if an architect doesn't do that, I would be I would question whether they really love what they're doing. So there's a flip side around accepting um um your design flair, and there's another side around just listening to what your client has to say. Yeah, I think I think it's twofold. Uh, so definitely, like you said, I think a lot of people are emotional about their design and they're quite protective um, because you spend so many hours on it. The second thing that I can see, and I mean no disrespect, <laughs> but <laughs> um, <laughs> architects do spend um, around seven years at university learning their skills, right? And I think it's very hard for some architects to be okay with being told that the design is not right by a property developer. Do you understand <laughs> what I'm trying to say? Like, if you spend that many years uh, at university, and trust me, I do believe that the e educational system for architects needs to be improved in terms of having more business notions, more property development notions, and so on, it needs to be uh, changed because now yeah. it's taught as a as a RT discipline, which is not in practice, right? But there yeah. can be an ego thing coming in, you know? Um, you know, at one point, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, there was, there, there was something I must mention to you, and this yeah. is where... You know, I think you asked me to do that psychological test, yeah? yeah. <laughs> and I am, uh, um, I think, what do you call it? Protected, I can't remember what the word is, but maybe you can find the word for it. Um, but the whole point around property development is that everyone needs to know what their responsibilities are, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I can't sit here and explain the eloquence of a building better than the architects, if yeah. I'm brutally honest with you. But one thing I can guarantee is that I know more about um, the number side of things more than yeah. the architects. I know what yeah. potentially someone would want to buy or rent more than an architect. So when I'm speaking, it's more around what makes the world go around. Unfortunately, it's money, isn't it? So my mind is always thinking about money, unfortunately. So if my mind is always thinking around that whole circle of money, I'm not saying that you're, I'm not questioning your design ability and the excellence that you have been able to do over the seven years, but you kind of have to understand that my objective is what is allowing us both to work and both yeah. to exist, if that makes sense, in our respective yeah. professions. So I would ask the architects to maybe just give us a bit of, um, give us a break a little bit, yeah? We respect what you're doing, but allow us to do what we do, which is to try and make as much money so we could do more projects together. I That brings me to the next question. <laughs> do you think that property development is constraining the creativity of architects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, <laughs> that has to be taken into account as well, because, you know, not only we have the, the planning regulations and the city regulations, like you said, uh, to, to fit in our building, but on top of that, we also have the, the cost cost control and the the you know making the most of each meter square so do you think that that can be an a nuisance to creativity for architects well i would like I'm to counter this question yeah 
<laughs> no, no. Um, so to answer your question, um, Julia, I think that um, I wouldn't say that developers constrain development. Yeah, I, I can't say that because um, if I give someone a credit card and say go shopping, that person is going to come back and buy themselves a Ferrari and a Bentley and maybe buy themselves a mansion in the process, not knowing yeah. that in my mind I only had one thousand pounds to spend. If that makes sense. So yeah. what I'm basically saying is, is that. When it comes to architecture, I'm not saying that we constrain it. We give you an envelope that we expect you to be very creative within, if that makes sense. So <laughs> I'll give you an example. In a building, um, you know, like your circulation spaces, they don't make you any money. Yeah. So if you're saying that your efficiency is 50 percent, yeah, net to gross, you have... Mm -hmm you have lost 50% of any income that we could ever get ever. Normally it's 80%, yeah. isn't it? 80% net to gross, yes? So you have allowed that, we've lost 30% worth of value just because of that. So my point is, um, I'm not saying that architects, we constrain them. I just think we give them an envelope or a square or a circle, whichever shapes to say that this is where we need you to operate. So what makes developers money is making sure that the building's efficient, so net to gross, um, water floor ratios, um, is it glazing to floor ratios, all of those types of ratios, if those are efficient, then you can say, all right, we've built, we, we can affect with layers of your quantity surveyor and we've been able to get you down to this envelope. But what we want to do is create something truly special. It's going to cost you an extra 200 grand, but it will make the world of difference to this particular development. Now, if I've never met an architect that has spoken to me in those terms to say to me, Adewale, we've been working very closely with the quantity surveyors and we're going to build your building for £2,500 per square metre. And it's amazing. But if you allow us an extra £50 per square metre, what we can do is create a, a design feature that would stand the test of time. And this is what I'm talking about, quantifying your creativity. Creativity, unfortunately, there isn't a price tag associated. So um, I know that in commercial buildings, to some degree, if... Is it Piano Ronzo? Um, the person that Arenzo designed Piano, yeah. Arenzo Piano. He designed the shard. That would come with a premium because of what he's done. But on the flip side, in in property, yeah, and this is maybe for all of your panel members or people that are listening, there is a limitation to how much money a particular property can make in a particular area. So, for yeah. instance, if you design a property that, um, uh, if I mean. Let's say you're in East London and you're designing a property that was allegedly meant to be in Kensington. That type of property would not achieve any more than um, the property, the maximum properties you can get in, in Barking and Dagenham. So this is where I say, and the reason why I wrote that blog is to say that we need to understand some of the other factors. So property values, build costs, net to gross ratios, and ensuring and understanding why those things are important. So I would... In answer to your question, we do not constrain um, creativity. I reckon the market constrains creativity based on what we can achieve. But also what you just said is that they pitch it to you the wrong way, right? <laughs> because if they were saying like, <laughs> look, you can make more money if we just invest slightly more. And I'm going to go back to the example of, um, of the circulation. Um, the circulation you always want it super tight but in London for instance you always have a really tight corridor with all these doors that bring you to an apartment right yeah. um, and you know as an architect I would say like okay maybe we need 
to create some com community spaces within the building and enlarge these um, circulation pockets to create interaction between the people. And therefore, you know, you can sell it with a different vision and with appeal to a different type of client, you know? So, of course, like the way that architects pitch sometimes is not business like, it comes more from a feeling perspective. <laughs> No, 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 which is which all makes sense. And I and I love the feeling, you know, but we need to take that feeling and monetize those feelings. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But that's what I mean. <laughs> that's yeah, where it goes wrong. No, no, but I, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Yeah. We are mm -hmm. now going into a space where PRS, private renter sector accommodation, is now becoming more and more important, as you may know already. So those types of schemes would ex you would expect to have some form of circulation space, yeah, a larger circulation space for young people or whoever lives in those accommodation types of accommodations to, to lounge and play snooker, maybe have a bit of a drink if they want to. Now, yeah. those things are applicable and it's required. But the other flip side is, let's say it was a rented accommodation, yeah, for whatever purpose. Now, you've now got a large circulation space. You've got youngsters that are doing criminality in those areas. So someone yeah. has to pay to get security. Then you have to heat that area. Then you have to secure that area. It all adds to what people service charges. So this is where there is that whole economics. Unfortunately, and I hate to say it, everything goes back to money. And when I talk about money, it's not profit, is the cost of operating that space and who's going to be responsible. So for instance, if I was a simple developer, and I developed a house or a block of flats and it had 30 units and there was a large community space. If someone dropped and if a child dropped and broke their leg, that is now my problem that I have to deal with, if that makes sense. So yeah. there's so many implications when it comes to creating some of these large circulation spaces that always have to be considered. But there is a time and there is a place for those types of schemes. I would definitely agree with you on that. So PRS, student accommodation, um, I think those things are quite good. Would you say that because the design of architects are based on assumptions and not on real data, that makes it more difficult to, you know, be a valuable argument? So I, I'm, I'm currently working with some brilliant architects that are starting their startup um, and they work a lot with AI, they work a lot with data. So each design decisions that are made are um, the, the, the result of some data analysis, right? How the users would move or how uh, the neighborhood would, um, you know, be impacted by that design and so on. Do you think that this could help to bring out some new ideas to to the developers if it's based more on data and not just on on you know uh feelings and ideas and <laughs> all this kind of abstract kind of design you know what i i i would like to say one point around that whole feelings and and being abstract i reckon everything that i classify as 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 valuable to humankind so we're talking about philosophy we're talking about art talking about music was based on a feeling so what what i'm now saying is is that um i feel that feelings have a strong place in society yeah a mm -hmm. strong place in creativity full stop um and your design intuition the design intuitions that architects are able to um and to, to invoke at times and then present into their designs 
I think those things are very important. So I just needed to throw that in there, um, just so that you know that we don't this we don't um we, we we pretty much respect your intuition and we wouldn't expect that to ever change. So today I worked with a smaller practice and we went to design review panel, which is like a panel that review other people's design. And the smaller architect, they're very young, very energetic, very intuitive. They they walked out of that review with no criticisms. And you know why that was? It's because they stuck to their gut. And me and them went back and forth many times about their design philosophy. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw in there to say that um, when we're employing architects, we're not employing you to just be a conveyor belt of people that are just going to deliver yeah. housing. We are expecting your intuition, your design acumen to help us to form a vision. Now, in terms yeah. of that whole point where you mentioned around the role of, um, of data analytics, in this day and age, information and data is everything. So if you look at um, COVID as an example, those, all those, if you remember, the, they said it was the Spanish flu. Do you yeah. think they had any idea of how many people were going to be impacted by the Spanish flu when it happened? But today's right. age, they've mathematically been able to chart what the worst case scenario is and when, and when we need to maybe go into lockdowns so that they can stop a massive yeah. rate of death. And in that same tone, um, I think data analytics from a housing perspective can have a massive impact on how we as developers can understand how buildings are put together, how they're used and how they are managed. And I think that um, we're starting to see a lot of that. So BIM, as you've mentioned, is now starting to move away from the concept, which is obviously your design stuff. And now we've got some property managers that are using BIM to manage buildings. So what then happens yeah. is energy costs, um, the, how, how people are walking in and out, how many hours they're switching on lights and stuff. I know Japan are very big on um, tech in their houses and they're able yeah. to track all of that type of stuff. So I think that um, there is a massive opportunity using your design intuition. We're not taking away from that, but also using data to buttress your points. And I think it makes a stronger case, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, what I see from the industry is that a lot of architects keep designing like five, ten years ago, um saying you know we've done it before like this and uh you know but then in the end they actually don't take time to analyze what is going on in the buildings they already made so they're not yeah. sure 100 percent that people will interact in those uh circulation space spaces it's just an assumption and it can change also from neighborhood or from cities and and, and so on so a lot of design failures are based on these assumptions. So I agree with you. It should be 50-50, like 50 data based and 50 gut feeling. Um, yeah. But we need to move on from that perspective as well. Um, the, the new technologies that can be applied to design, uh, you know, to reduce the, the sustainability uh, costs and, and so on. Those could be integrated into the design from a very early stage instead of being plugged in at the end when the building is delivered. So I think that there is a big opportunity here to reflect on how to build teams to make a project happen. Um, so we see know, in response to what you just said now, yeah. and, I, and I'll give you just 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 a very quick example. So, in in the London plan, we've got we need to achieve. I don't know. You might establish like a, a forty nine percent carbon reduction on your build and embodied carbon, etc. But what they now have said is that we need to understand. We need you to send us annual 
checks to the GLA for larger schemes, and that needs to be sent every single year, I think, for the first 10 years. So what you're now seeing is that the GLA, through planning policy, are now expecting developers and house owners and, obviously, um, large-scale developers to provide that information on a yearly basis. So what then happens is that um, digi digitalization of carbon, et cetera, is now going to start to take preeminence in the long-term management of a particular building. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's it's yeah it's it's the future and we need to think about it like that way and integrate everything together as well. We have a a question from Zachary. Do those savings? Uh, I'm guessing it's about the the circulation spaces and and you know trying to to uh, save uh, money on the project. Uh, if those savings savings permit extras to be added to the building to improve quality of life or just into developers' pocket. Zachary, <laughs> you, you know, you were gonna have this type of question, huh? No, no, no. You know what? I think, I think, I think Zachary. I think that one thing that, um, and just to respond to your question, Zachary, it's important to know that developers can't get away with anything. It wasn't like the '80s where they can build whatever they want, like shacks, sell it, and then just make a killing. In today's mm -hmm. age, planning policy and national policy means that we have to deliver a quality of life that is sufficient for the 21st century and that is literally ingrained into planning policy so what i'm basically saying is is that as much as developers like to make money we have to ensure that we deliver some of these houses and all houses to meet a minimum requirement so i'm talking noise requirements i'm talking air quality i'm talking um what else is there sustainability, all of those elements. So even daylight and sunlight, if you don't get enough daylight and sunlight, your scheme can be refused by not getting a planning permit. So I just wanted to throw that out there to say, we cannot do whatever we want to make profit. We have to do it within the confines of planning policy. Yeah, but I feel like every time you talk about this, it's always a requirement, right? Like, so <laughs> we put money in the requirements as in like, okay, if they ask us, we will do it. <laughs> You know, and, and, and put it like this, I think that, um, how, how do I say about the requirements? So if you give, how do I put it? Now, you mentioned around, I keep saying requirements. And so you know what, I'll put my hands up to that. But it's not all, the reason why we have laws and requirements is to, that is, is to stop and what you call, is it scrupulous developers from doing whatever they want? Yeah? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, the reason why I refer to that is to say that we we operate within requirements and we try mm -hmm. to we try to do more than those requirements where we can because ultimately yeah. if you're like if you look at um I don't know I just think it's important to note that we follow the law and the law is what we have to operate under and it's not always mm -hmm. about profit so for instance I know that um, I'm working on a scheme and we can get an additional floor, but it might have an impact on the neighbouring building, um, yeah. daylight, sunlight, in terms of wind analysis, etc. So I wouldn't accept an additional floor if it's going to have a detrimental impact to someone on another. And that's what a lot of developers, were not always sitting there counting our money to say, Bloody, like, we just need more money. We have to think <laughs> about people's yeah. needs, etc. So um, to answer his question... I think that circulation spaces, 
um, Zachary, I think the, the, the main point I would say about the circulation spaces is, is it's all good having an amazingly designed space that is 60% um, efficiency, but that, who's paying for that 40%? And then yeah. what, the, question, what, the, the reason I asked that question is that 40% will be paid by those residents through service charges. If a service charge that is typically meant to be £1,500 a year is now £6,000, yeah. Who's going to be, who are they going to fight with? They're going to fight with the building owners and the developers. So we have to um, ensure that economics are factored into from all stages of the development program, not only from development, but from a person that's effectively going to be living in those properties and having to pay some form of service charge. Yeah. So that was bringing me to the the next question about cost control and quality control. So we we covered the cost control, let's say. Um, but in terms of quality, also the choice of materials is also extremely important. Um, and uh, it can happen that a project looks beautiful on the render once again. And then once you go and see the project, you're like, oh, like, <laughs> it's not so nice. <laughs> you know. And you can take the example of the, the shards, um, which, you know, is a beautiful design building but in terms of execution is maybe not not the best quality material you know like once you no go to see it, that, yeah, that. there are certain details in there okay i'm not going to take the example of the shard but there are some projects out there that especially from sometimes it is especially from architects that are star architects because their scheme is so outrageous that once you actually build it, you realize it's completely out of the budget. So you need to cut down on something. And this something is usually the materials. <laughs> Sorry, my dog is is going insane. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, especially in Star Architect, I'm talking about Zaha Hadid as well, Renzo Piano. I mean... There is a Renzo Piano building where uh, in Rotterdam that is also the same. Like they had to cut down the costs, and therefore the material that were picked are very, you know, low quality, and the details are, you know, not great, and and it takes out of the spirit and the vision of the building. I don't know if you had the same experience as well, um, but. Yeah. Uh, you know what, Julia? I can answer that question, and I would give I would give it to you as succinctly as I physically can. So we've got the Reba stages we've talked about. So zero, one, two, and three. Three is when you're expecting to get planning permission or some form of permit from a government party. From Reba stages four to seven, yeah, you're doing technical design. You're doing as-built drawings and all of that stuff. Now, yeah. when you get post Reba stage three, it's not me yeah. that's looking at it anymore. Is a contractor. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I may say, Mr. Contractor, I've got a hundred million <laughs> I won't say tell him that, but in my numbers, to get the profit I need, I can only spend a hundred million pounds on a project, as an example. Yeah. Mr. Contractor says, you know what? The market is telling us that we can only build it for 130 million pounds. And that's speaking to all of their supply chain. They've got the bricks you wanted. They've costed it all. And they say, we can only do it for 120 pounds, 20 million. The next question will be is, what do you want to do about that? And I would say, <laughs> on 120 million, there is no way I can build this scheme. So we might as well just stop there. Yeah? yeah. Or what we can do is what they call value engineering. So we can start yeah. to rationalize 
design elements yeah mm -hmm. to make it more cost effective to build so that we can get down to your 100 million mark so my point is this if you're working with your clients yeah as architects if you are close enough to supply chain so for instance you can't if i'm in the uk don't tell me about a brick that's only made in brazil does that mm -hmm. make sense because yeah. for you to like, bring it to London, it's going to be a ridiculous amount of money. The embodied carbon is going to be ridiculous and it just messes everything up. But if sure. you're saying to me, there's a there's a factory in um, in Nottingham that can deliver these bricks for a reasonable yeah. price. And this is why we're picking it here. It shows that you are always thinking about the costs and then you're also mm -hmm. thinking about your design at the same time. So my thing is. I know that's the job of a quantity surveyor, but I think maybe architects should spend time also just liaising with different com building components companies to see how much they're costing. And then I think the only other part I would mention and this whole cost control slash quality is, um, this is what someone taught me and I don't expect anyone to take my advice for this, but this is what <laughs> someone taught me. If you can build their building, yeah, using the materials that you can get from your local building merchants yes you are winning because yeah. that in materials easily you can so for instance window lintels or door lintels etc if you get standard size there's standard sizes when you start doing irregular building openings etc that means that something has to be uniquely and bespokely made for that particular purpose but if everything's yeah. standard, if there's standard windows, standard doors, standard um, detailing, it just equals a very standard cost that we're going to be happy with. But I believe that you can use simple design solutions to create um, amazing um, 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 design, in my personal opinion. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I, I don't know. I've had all kinds of experience about that. Um, I also think that the quality and, and the cost control need to come in at a very early stage. I feel like we let too much like the architect be free to do whatever. And then you guys agree to something. And then uh, the, thir the, the, the third segment starts and, and the construction company comes in and everything has to be kind of redone or re redesigned or, or rethought through in order to fit the budget so, and, and the quality. So Julia, I've got a suggestion and this is for yourself. This is for anyone that you work with or anyone that's listening. The, the, the way that I think that can be resolved, yes, is if you advise your clients to get a building contractor involved in conversations at the same time mm -hmm. that the architect is involved. If everyone's speaking from them, they can be very active in managing that process. So that would maintain the design integrity all the way from Reba stages to all the way to seven or eight, whatever it is, when it got yeah. to use. So my, my, my suggestion would be that um, if we can have integrated teams, and I know public in the public sector, it doesn't always work that way, but if sure. you can have integrated project teams um, from the private sector and you manage that whole team and they take it all the way through, um, that would have a massive impact in, in maintaining um, the design integrity of a particular um, design. Yeah, no, you're completely right, and I and I agree. I will definitely. I I'm trying to change the way that the the teams are built since the competition phase onwards. Um, we need to rethink it completely in order to innovate in the architecture field. So, thank you so much for all your input. Um, I was wondering if you could answer one last question. Like, what was the the reaction of architects on your blog? <laughs> 
didn't get enough architects responding to that, to be honest. Um, I got one one architect and he basically slaughtered quite a few of my points. And I, <laughs> I'm open to criticism, I'm open to challenge. And anything I say here now, if anyone wants to write a blog about it, I'm happy to post it on my website, as you can see at the bottom there. And uh, we can just keep the conversation going. But um, I think that the way we see things as developers is very specific. And I know that the way that architects see things, but this is where I feel that um, there is a there is a strong need for us to continually work together and continue speaking, not in a professional setting, but also yeah. just these types of forums so that we continue this conversation. So I understand what an architect's motivation is and my motivation is as a developer, and we can work together to achieve one good thing, which is amazing homes where people want to live or work. Exactly. No, you're completely right. Thank you so much, Adewale, for you know coming in and being open about all these questions because I know it's it's not always easy to to be diplomatic about it as well. Um, but um, can you tell people where they can find you? I know that you're very active also on Clubhouse. That's also how we met. So uh, if you wanted uh, people to reach out to you, how could they do that best? So um, to reach out to me, you can either connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's my name, as you can see, Adewale Ademalake. If you copy and paste that into LinkedIn, you'll find me. You can also get look at my blog, which is A Lake Dreaming. Have a look on there. You can con connect with me via that. And then also I do weekly talks, which is called the Property Development Handbook um, on topics relating to de design, development, etc on a weekly basis. So I've got in my in the panel that we've put together, there's myself, I've got a number of architects, we've got planning consultants, and we have all of those conversations that we're having now in that forum. So um, yeah, it's quite a, quite a good conversation. So you can connect with me with most platforms, Instagram, Twitter, where else? Everything. <laughs> Okay, great. And you guys, you can listen again to this uh, episode on our podcast um, called the IBD Hub podcast and it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube so uh, please subscribe to it if you haven't yet um, so you get notified when there is a new episode coming out and thank you so much for coming uh, on today uh, Adewale uh, it was a pleasure to have you um, love your uh, energy I love uh, uh, you know your your thoughts about uh, the field and and the innovative uh, way of thinking and um, thank you for sharing your experience every day uh, on different platforms because that that's really worth a lot no thank you very much i'm very glad to have been on here and thank you so much for the invitation I'm very no problem it's my pleasure uh, i will end the 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 broadcast and i see you backstage thank you